This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. SEC and FASB rules are always evolving. Since 1983, the SEC Institute, a division of Practicing Law Institute, has been a leader in SEC compliance education. The SEC Institute's goal is to help public companies in the U.S. and abroad do the best possible job of meeting the filing requirements of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. We're going to chat with George Wilson, a director of the SEC Institute, about the tools and resources available through the SECI, as well as some hot-button issues in the Institute's March 2020 quarterly newsletter, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. Today, we want to talk in-depth about the SEC Institute at PLI, which focuses on up-to-date compliance and accounting education for attorneys and professionals. We at Insecurities obviously support that mission. We'll discuss some of the resources the SEC Institute provides to PLI members regarding trends and developments in the legal and accounting worlds. In that vein, we'll also be talking a bit about COVID-19, commonly known as the coronavirus, and its impact on the financial reporting and business world. Unlike our usual episodes, we're actually not in the studio together today, but recording remotely due to the abundance of caution encouraged by officials and employers alike. So I'm sure Kurt is happy he's not stuck in a podcast studio with me today, but uh, we're glad that you all could join in. (laughs) No, but glad to be with you virtually, Chris. As I mentioned up top, we're fortunate to have with us today George Wilson. George is a director at PLI's SEC Institute, or SECI, where he teaches workshops dealing with a variety of SEC and FASB-related topics. George developed the Institute's initial Advanced Accounting and Reporting for SEC Professionals workshop, as well as workshops in a variety of technical accounting areas. Before joining the SECI, George was an assistant professor in the Department of Accounting at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was also a director of the university's accounting MBA program. George is a past recipient of the AICPA's Outstanding Discussion Leader Award. And George has also spent some time in the private sector, including during a stint as a senior manager with KPMG. Undoubtedly impressive credentials, but with all that said, George insists he is just a country accountant from northern Michigan. Well, from the UP to DC, if only virtually, George, glad to have you with us. Welcome to Insecurities. Oh, Kurt, Chris, it is a pleasure to be here with you today in this virtual sense, but uh, in the sharing information sense, too. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and participate in what you guys are bringing to your audience. George, I want to talk a little bit about, I had a great experience attending the SEC Reporting Skills Workshop for Financial Professionals. So as a CPA, you know, it's always great to get back in touch with kind of the nuts and bolts around forms 10K, 10Q, famous 8K, which we've talked about a little bit in in prior episodes and their related disclosures. But I don't want to hog the conversation on a great program. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of the tools and, and programs available through the SECI at PLI? Oh, I'd be glad to do that. You know, SECI was actually 
started over 30 years ago. And it's always been about helping professionals who work, you know, in the trenches of SEC reporting, be effective at what they do. It was actually a little over six years ago that PLI acquired the programs from the gentleman who originally founded SEC Institute. And a really neat thing that happened with that acquisition was the ability to also bring similar programs to attorneys. So we're serving a broader audience, but we really kind of start with, I think, the program you mentioned, the very sort of foundational SEC reporting skills workshop, one designed specifically for legal professionals and and another, the one that you went to, designed for financial reporting people. Those programs, you know, most of the time when you get into SEC reporting, you learn things in kind of an ad hoc fashion. But those two-day really intense programs build the foundation that you usually don't have time to build when you're learning on the job. And then on top of that, we offer more specialized programs like MD&A in-depth. We do accounting stuff, business combinations. When RevRec was hot, we did a bunch of RevRec courses. And then we also provide conferences in the middle of the year and the end of the year, and then for mid and small size companies kind of in September that kind of keep you up to date once you've kind of built your foundation. I've been fortunate enough to teach these programs, do the workshops and speak at the conferences full time since the year 2000. It's kind of crazy to think about how long ago that is and how much has happened since then. But we really do our best to help people deal with evolving issues and help you stay on top of stuff, like what's going on in the environment around us right now. What should we be saying to investors about that? So there's a little bit of history uh, and a little bit about what we do and kind of our mission, which really fits together with the educational mission of PLI. That's helpful, George. And I, I know you've really focused on some of the in-person resources or courses that are available through the Institute. But among the resources that are available through the SECI are the quarterly newsletters, which highlight important SEC, FASB, and PCAOB developments, along with other regulatory issues that practitioners should keep in mind. George, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about the SECI quarterly newsletter. What's the purpose and what kind of stories or resources make their way into the newsletter? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. You know, in the world of accounting and all the legal developments surrounding reporting to the SEC and all the other related activities, you know, the IPO activity, the stuff like that, there's a tremendous amount of information flow. The accounting firms provide newsletters and law firms provide legal memos. And some of those, you know, it's almost like there's this vast ocean of information, but not all of it's going to be relevant to someone who's working on this quarter's 10Q. So the mission of the newsletter is really to kind of sift and sort and think about the things that will be most important for people kind of in that in that process, deep in the trenches of actually reviewing or drafting a periodic report or an 8K, kind of what do I need to keep up to speed about and and, and know about right now? And then also, what's in the near-term horizon that I should be thinking about? So the newsletter tries to really focus on things like 
what's going to happen in the next month or two that I probably need to adapt to. So that's the idea behind it. And to blend together both the legal world and the accounting world for our, our joint audience there. Yeah. So speaking of the audience, who would you say is the intended audience or, or what kind of role does that person play? And and how can they sign up, George? Let's let's get right to it. <laughs> yeah, easy to do. You can actually go to the uh, PLI webpage and look at SEC Institute. Uh, there's a link there at the top of the webpage. There's also a link to publications, um, and you can find that. But the the intended audience is really kind of the person who, for example, is a lawyer, a legal professional, who's in a company, in the in the counsel's office in a company, and you're responsible for reviewing. Because most of the time, lawyers are going to be in more of a review mode for 10Ks, 10Qs, 8Ks. You may be doing some drafting of those documents, particularly more like 8Ks. That's that's kind of the in-house part. If you're in a firm, if you're an associate or a partner who's providing, you know, services, or regulatory compliance reviews, um, reg reviews, stuff like that for Ks and Qs, that's the person who really I think will benefit here. And then within a company, if you're like the financial reporting director, the SEC reporting director, or someone who works for one of those people or the people who manage those people, we're, the, we're trying to help you keep up to date with all the things you need to be thinking about. You know, simple examples of that. You guys know about the disclosure, modernization, and simplification rule from a year ago, March. There were some things that were changed there that it's interesting. 10K is being filed this season that should have changes from that rule. Sometimes don't have them. You know, people miss stuff like that. And so we'll put little blurbs in about stuff like that, or we'll tie to a blog post where we've got our cookbook for how to implement all that stuff. So that's kind of the audience and kind of what we're trying to help people do. It is a helpful resource. I would recommend it to any of our listeners or anyone who who practices in the space, whether they are on the legal side or on the accounting side. And and actually, with that in mind, we'd like to spend a little bit of time today leafing through the SECI's most recent quarterly newsletter. I actually have a copy of it here with me in my hands, hot off the presses. And I have to say, there is a ton of helpful information in here, as as advertised, as promised. In the March 2020 quarterly newsletter includes things like developments relating to ESG disclosures. By my count, the newsletter highlights around 20 topics with summaries and links to helpful information. That's that's quite a lot. Is that normal volume, George? Uh, I think this quarter had a little bit more, which was sort of surprising, given that this is usually a pretty quiet quarter. But there there's been a fair amount of activity through the end of last year and the first quarter of this year at the SEC, and it kind of reflects that. Usually, it's a little shorter than this. And, and as you look at the individual blurbs, you'll notice the blurbs are usually pretty short. It's written more with a need-to-know approach so that if there's a topic you want to learn more about. You don't have to read like half a page about it here. Just a quick highlight. And then I always put links in there so that you can get to more detailed information if you need to. Let's pivot to actually talk about some of the uh, more interesting or hot topics that are in the March 2020 quarterly newsletter. Uh, Before we sat down to record today, George was kind enough to point out some of the topics that he thought were particularly noteworthy. 
We'd like to walk through them today, but to give our listeners a little bit of a roadmap, first, we're going to talk about the new SEC guidance on the use of performance indicators and metrics in earnings releases and 10Qs. Next, we'll talk about an SEC rulemaking proposal to modernize shareholder proposals. Third, we'll discuss FASB accounting and disclosure issues relating to reference rate reform and the process to move away from LIBOR. Fourth, we'll touch on developments in the ESG investing and disclosure space. And finally, as Chris mentioned earlier in the show, we'll close out this episode with a note on coronavirus. So Chris, you want to go ahead and kick us off with a discussion of new metrics guidance? Of course, Kurt. You know that I get very enthusiastic anytime we bring up accounting uh, and financial reporting here. <laughs> I know so you do. I'd ask that you step aside while we talk to some of the more detailed. It's your time to shine, buddy. That's right. I'm right there. I'm right there with you, Chris. Right there with you. George and I are going to have a good time chatting about this today, Kurt. All right. <laughs> so, a- as mentioned in the quarterly newsletter, you know, released on January 30th, the SEC's release focuses on key performance indicators and metrics in the management's discussion and analysis, or MDNA section of SEC filings. Now, MDNA traditionally has been what I like to call the show and tell section of a corporate filing, where management is given the leeway to describe some of the more exciting or challenging aspects of the business during the reporting period at least as compared to the somewhat rote financial statements and related footnotes. The narrative nature of MDNA has often lent its interpretation to a higher degree of scrutiny by the SEC. Obviously, for those of you listening regularly to the podcast, you know that non-GAAP metrics have been on the minds of not only the, the commission as well as practitioners over the past you know few years. My favorite example of a non-GAAP metric stems from the late 90s, early 2000s dot-com era, where in order to seem more impressive, some of the tech startups that were seeking financing would use a metric called eyeballs instead of users. So if you've got 100 users of your, your platform uh, you know, in, in the third quarter, they would instead say, we had 200 eyeballs on our platform, obviously doubling that. That was kind of the, the, the classic example of a non-GAAP metric that can be construed uh, you know, for, for some of those purposes. So we fast forward to today, and the SEC release formalizes guidance regarding the presentation of metrics and key performance indicators, or KPIs, in the MDNA section. Specifically, it states that disclosures regarding a specific metric should include a clear definition of the metric and how it is calculated, a statement why the metric is useful to the public, and an inside look at how management itself utilizes the metric in its decision-making. Now, George, on a scale of zero to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, how important is this guidance in the financial reporting landscape? Oh, that is an absolutely great question, Chris. And I, I, let me let me wander a little bit before I answer it. You know, way back in the old days, before SOX, companies used what we called pro forma numbers, which were non-GAAP measures, essentially. SOX gave the SEC the regulatory, the statutory power to regulate the use of those non-GAAP measures. But they all start with something from the financial statements and add something to it or take something away from it. Um, That's good. But in the tech world, as you mentioned, great example, probably more indicative of how the underlying business is performing will be metrics like how many users do you have? How engaged are they? How long do they spend on your site? Nothing to do with the financial statements. And there's been no guidance about how to use those. And you know, there's always, you know, from a legal perspective, you can't be misleading. And I think there have been companies that have used those kind of metrics in a misleading way. And the SEC has written comments about that over the years. 
you know, it's interesting if someone says these are our numbers for monthly average users and here's how much they're growing. Isn't that great? How do you know that relates to what's going to happen with financial performance and value to shareholders? You don't. And that's the kind of loop you need to close. Well, the staff had done that through the comment process on numerous occasions. And even more subtly, when companies change the way they do a metric, if they change it so that it looks better, they haven't always disclosed that they've changed how that's that that's been done. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. So I think this was a very necessary release, necessary guidance. And, and my reaction to it was about time. Mm-hmm. But the other, other part of it is, I think they've been behaving as if it's been there for a while. And, and I think, you know, the thou shalt not mislead rules, rule 10b5, et cetera, kind of give you that foundation. So I don't think it's anywhere near the Sarbanes-Oxley end of the spectrum. I'd put it maybe three quarters of the way in the other direction because it's sort of been something you knew you should do anyway. But I love the way they formalized it. It's simple. It's direct. It's principles-based. And and I really do think it was necessary. Uh, You did a great overview of it. There's a lot of subtlety here. One of the things that stuck with me, too, from the actual guidance itself came out on January 30th and is effective as of, I believe, February 25th of 2020, right? So that's a 25-day turnaround, which uh, for those of you, you know, in in the accounting world, you know, you got to catch your breath thinking about how fast you might have to implement something. But going back to, George, what you talked about, you know, a lot of the major players in this space, they already have the answers to those kind of big three questions of give me a clear definition, how Mm -hmm. we calculate it, why is it important, and how are we using it? Uh, So I think that that kind of 25-day timeline is probably, you know, pretty prescient and and doable for those companies knowing those answers. Now, the the folks that are going to get stuck holding the bag here are those that, to, to your point, are purposefully presenting metrics that boost the perception of success of their business without having the facts and circumstances below them to really substantiate their use. I, I think that is spot on. And, and I think that's the concern. And the, and the staff has searched for those kinds of issues through the comment process, but this formalizes it. You mentioned the really tight turnaround also. I mean, essentially, uh, there wasn't a whole bunch of discussion about this. They just did the interpretive release, effective when published in the Federal Register. That's the reason we put it in the newsletter, because this release will apply. It did apply if you did your quarter one earnings release after the 25th, and you need to have processes in place moving forward for second quarter, third quarter, or whatever quarter your your fiscal year gets you into. And I think the the final point on this you spoke a little bit about, George, is that consistency, is that quarter to quarter, year to year, mm-hmm. you'll be able to see and discern if there have been major differences in the calculation or the use of the metric by management uh, as these things kind of ebb and flow. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, if you decide that you've presented a metric historically and now you're not going to present it, explaining to people why you did that. You know, if that metric started to look a little a little weaker and you say, well, we're not going to show that anymore, you can't just stop doing it and leave people wondering about that. There's actually a great example, Square, I think decided to discontinue a particular revenue metric, and they did a really great Q&A piece about why they decided to discontinue that. So people can look to those kind of examples. And not not to put too um, too much uh, out there right away, uh, We that's the kind of stuff we put in our blog. I did a blog post about those.
I know we could spend all day talking about KPIs, metrics, gap and non-gap, uh, George. But uh, Kurt, I know you wanted to cover uh, one or two other topics in the the newsletter. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about shareholder proposals here for a second. Okay. Uh, so just to orient everybody who's listening, on November fifth the SEC voted to approve two sets of rules amendments that will, in the words of SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, enhance the accuracy, transparency, and effectiveness of our proxy voting system. The first proposed rule amendments are designed to improve the accuracy and transparency of proxy voting advice by, for example, requiring businesses that provide proxy voting advice to provide enhanced disclosures about potential conflicts of interest. Much has been written about the efficacy of the proposed amendments to rules governing proxy voting advice, and we don't want to cover that well-trodden ground today. Instead, we'd like to focus on the second set of proposed rule amendments, which modernize the rule that governs the process for shareholder proposals to be included in a company's proxy statement, a rule that actually hasn't been updated for 65 years, um, which is similar. Chris, we've talked before about the advertising rule. seems like we're, we're coming back to some oldies but goodies here, That's and right. this time it's, it's shareholder proposals. So for those who aren't familiar with proxy voting, let, let me take a step back. At the annual shareholder meetings of public companies, shareholders have the right to, quote, vote their shares. What does that mean? Well, this is a, a wild oversimplification, but for purposes of our discussion today, let's assume one share equals one vote. So if you own 100 shares of a company, you would have 100 votes at the annual shareholder meeting. All right. So shareholders have the right to vote their shares, to elect directors, to approve or reject major corporate transactions, to approve or reject compensation packages, or to vote on other corporate governance issues. Here's the thing. Most shareholders do not actually attend annual shareholder meetings. They instead vote their shares through proxies, which you can think of as representatives or surrogates who vote for them. Before an annual shareholders meeting, shareholders will receive in the mail a so-called proxy statement that lists items or actions that are up for a vote at the upcoming shareholder meeting. Shareholders may complete a proxy card if they don't plan to attend, which will indicate how they wish to vote on the various items, usually for, against, abstain, or not voted. They return the card to their proxy, and the proxy will go to the meeting and vote on their behalf. The matters that are up for a vote at the shareholder meeting are usually set by company management, but shareholders themselves may require the company to include proposals in the proxy statement. That is, shareholders can force a vote on certain topics if, if the shareholder meets certain criteria or thresholds. So, for example, if a shareholder or group of shareholders want to force a company to commit to a zero carbon emissions policy, if they meet certain criteria, they can force the shareholders to vote on a proposal to that effect. The proposed rule amendments to modernize the shareholder proposal rule tweak the criteria to get a proposal on the proxy statement. George, can you tell us a little bit about the proposed rule amendments and what's in the SECI quarterly newsletter on this topic? Well, in the newsletter, I mean, this is one of those proposals from a governance and from a legal perspective that's really important. You know, management 
can be a little concerned if shareholders have the opportunity to get all kinds of issues into the proxy statement that you mentioned that could potentially distract management, alter the strategy of the business, um, sometimes be sort of a, a pet issue for a particular shareholder. Those kinds of issues can distract a company from the overall strategy it's trying to pursue. Sometimes shareholders have a very salient point that the rest of the shareholders really want to vote about. And it's a very complex issue. The, the fundamental issue here is how much of a company stock should I own before I can put something onto the, the proxy statement? Because including it in the proxy statement means the shareholders are going to have to vote about it. So this is, as you said, an area that has not been updated in 30 some years. So this would actually increase the ownership level to $2,000 or 1% of a company securities for at least a year. And that gets rid of an old 1% threshold, but it would also establish other thresholds, continuous ownership of $2,000 of company securities for three years, $15,000 for two years, or $25,000 for one year. And, and when you think about inflation, those, those aren't unreasonable. And it means you've got to be a reasonably serious shareholder to be able to put something into the proxy statement. It would also tinker with uh, how many proposals you're allowed to put forward. Uh, essentially, it would be one proposal for each shareholder uh, versus person, kind of a subtle issue there. But try to make sure that an individual group can't do too many things to distract, put distracting information in the proxy from management's perspective. But there's there's a really neat attempt here on the part of the SEC to modernize something and find a good middle ground. And that's one thing I like about the current administration at the SEC. They, they work on a principles-based model and search for something that's reasonable. Yeah, I think in, in the middle. There. I, I, Nobody, you're, you're never going to make everybody happy no. with something like this. No, I, I, and I think you're you're right. And you know the the conversation we had with former SEC Commissioner Rob Jackson on a recent episode hit that point several mm -hmm. times, just how much they are trying to use a principles-based approach, how much they are working together, even when, you know, you have some folks on the commission who I think come at their job with very different ideas about what is their role? What is the role of the SEC? How should the capital markets function? What types of things should companies disclose? But they do seem to be working well together to get at usually pretty down the middle types of rules or, or guidance. You know, I'm not sure actually that this was one that was necessarily right down the middle. I mean, it, it got um, yeah. it got some pretty harsh pushback. I mean, it, it passed 3-2 along partisan lines and former Commissioner Jackson was was particularly hard on the rule. And, you know, we, we have seen a ton of comments start to come in. In fact, the comment period just closed. And as is the case with most rules or proposals, the comments sort of run the gamut. But I, I think a lot of them were saying, look, we think this is ultimately bad for investors. We think SEC, you might have gone too far here. So, I mean, notably, the Council of Institutional Investors and actually the SEC's own 
investor advisory committee called on the commission to scrap the proposed amendments and just and just start over. And I I wonder if those comments or that view is is getting some traction because we saw just about a, a week or two ago now. Republican SEC Commissioner Alad Roisman said in a speech, actually, I believe it was at the Council of Institutional <laughs> Investors. Uh, it was, he, yes. he said, look, I, I'm taking this feedback seriously, and I am certainly open to considering other ways to accomplish the policy goals that are reflected in the in the rules or the proposals. So I'm not sure where we're going. I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine, George, but do you have a sense of what this final rule might look like? You know, if I were to venture a guess, I bet they'll repropose. I have a similar feeling. Yeah, because the, as you said, and, and as Commissioner Reisman brought out in his speech, which was, I think you're very current on that. Wasn't that just a few days ago? It, it was pretty recent, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, that's who we are. Ever we current. like to be right there on the edge, right on the edge of the surfing wave. Absolutely. I was surprised at the vehemence of the reaction from, well, not from some parts, but the, the strength of the reaction from groups I, I didn't expect to have that strong a reaction. So I think they'll repropose. That's my feeling. But we'll see. Um, they've tend to, tended to move things along very briskly when they think they've got the right answer. Uh, absolutely. And if they, if they change it a bit, we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, Is that a vague enough answer? No, I, that was perfect, actually. And, and I think you're right for what it's worth. I mean, I think, Chris, get ready for it, the, the weekly plug. I think that's sort of what happened with regulation best interest, right? Oh, there you go. I've been waiting for that all, all episode. <laughs> um, I, I think it was a similar uh, rulemaking process where they kind of got where they wanted to be. And there was a lot of negative feedback. There continues to be a lot of negative feedback, but all signs are they're going to be full speed ahead. Maybe that's where we'll end up here. But uh, only time will tell, and I think that'll start to take shape this year. So anyway, Chris, there I go talking about a sort of thorny rule. I know you want to get back to accounting. You want to take it away with topic three? I like how both of you, in, in speaking about that topic, have left enough uh, caveats and discussion open so you can both be right uh, when the rule is eventually uh, come down. So speak, You're picking up speak- on how I do things. Amen. Speaking of being right, Kurt, when we kicked off the podcast earlier this year, we had a, an episode looking forward to 2020 and some of the things that we thought would be impactful in the legal and accounting industry. One of the issues that was right at the top of our list was the transition away from LIBOR. Uh, actually, and I did go back the other day and listen to episode two to confirm that we did have that as a top item uh, on our list. And here we are just a few short weeks later, proving ourselves right. So kudos to us, Kurt, for for being so <laughs> so clairvoyant uh, to know this was coming. But I'll give you the credit for that one. Well done, Joe. Thank you. In short, uh, the London interbank offered rate has long been used as a staple metric in the interest rate-based lending world. Although it has been seen as a general indicator of the looseness or tightness of credit markets, uh, scandals regarding its manipulation and misuse have led regulators to phase out or sunset the use of LIBOR by the end of 2021. So again, the end of next year. Uh, Needless to say, the transition away from LIBOR has been described as tricky at best, and some say nearly impossible at at its worst, noting the sheer volume of contracts and offerings involving LIBOR as a metric. George, what does the SECI quarterly newsletter bring up regarding reference rate reform? Well, reference rate reform is obviously 
something almost all companies need to think about. For some companies, it's going to be a fairly significant issue. Um, for other companies, it may not be that significant an issue. So we really kind of uh, focused on it from a couple of different directions. One is that the SEC staff has talked about it a bit in a staff statement. And it's actually, it's interesting because it comes from Corp Fin, Investment Management, Trading and Markets, and OCA. But it's getting into kind of the operational issues. You know, if, if you have a number of debt agreements, you're just a net borrower of money and you've got a bunch of debt agreements and they're all tied to LIBOR, what do those debt agreements say uh, you, w- will happen when LIBOR goes away? If they're silent as to that issue, there's, there's certainly a lot of stuff to think about. So they're suggesting let's get on top of this and take care of it. If you're a lender and you have a whole bunch of loans receivable that are LIBOR-based, Hopefully, your contracts have something that will happen about that. But you need to help investors understand how much risk you have. For some companies, it could be simple. For other companies, financial companies, this could be a big deal. So think about all of that. That's the SEC reporting. Tell investors what they need to know about it. People have started to have risk factors. If it's a big enough deal, it might need some discussion in the description of the business or potentially even MDNA. The other part of the puzzle here, though, and this is why I think it's a kind of cool issue, is there are accounting issues that go along with this. Um, If you change a debt agreement, we're right back to accounting, Chris, good stuff. Um, If you change a debt agreement, modify a debt agreement, that could trigger some accounting that needs to accompany that modification of certain criteria are, are met. So the FASB is addressing those and working to finalize a standard about making the transition and trying to make that be as disruptive as possible. So this was actually addressed in the newsletter in two places. And again, is one of those things after the end of the first quarter, once you're done with all the hustle and bustle of the 10K and the queue that follows right after that, this is probably one of those things to make sure you're on top of. And, you know, if you're a big multinational company, your treasury group's probably got horsepower to kind of think about that and hopefully resources to devote to that process. But in that, you know, medium size and smaller company, this is one of those things that now has to be added to your never-ending list of projects and helps create at least a little more job security somehow. So that's where we were kind of coming from with that's that a, one. That's, that's a good plug for your favorite accountants out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Looking for some extra work, get up on your uh, LIBOR transition uh, efforts. I, yeah. I liked how the the SEC uh, pronouncement really broke it down into to three different elements of managing the transition I thought was interesting. The first being, you know, what do our existing contracts say, right? And, and that's the example, mm-hmm. George, you just brought up. My guess is, and, and you know, I'm not a mind reader here or can tell the future, but that every LIBOR-based contract does not conveniently end on December 31st, 2021, thereby leaving them <laughs> a very clean break to start on January 1st, 2022 with a non-LIBOR-based yeah. metric. So how are we going to treat those those contracts, those uh, derivatives, those items that are tied to LIBOR now, right? That's kind of the first bucket. The second bucket yes, is, yeah. is how are we going to you know, perform and create new contracts. Again, most companies are not going to wait until Jan 1 of, of 2022 to start, you know, tying a, you know, market-based reference rate into the discussion of, of products and things they're developing. 
Uh, and then third, which I think is the most important, you spoke to a little bit, uh, George, is, is those other business risks. What are we not thinking about from a strategy perspective, a process or procedures perspective that we may have to take into account because you know we're so used to uh, the, the LIBOR metric, the LIBOR rate as our, as our cornerstone. Now we're going to have to change up uh, you know, even our IT function, right? The way we measure and create financial information about our performance, we might have to, to move a lot of those levers too. So those three buckets, I thought were a good way to think of the transition and how it's going to impact those businesses operating in that space. I agree. That's a great way to frame that so that it can be treated in an operational process. Yes. And George, just kind of a little off the cuff question. I know that then alternative uh, reference rate has been selected uh, kind of as the market leader, the secured overnight financing rate. I got to ask you, George, is there an appropriate pronunciation of the acronym (laughs) (laughs) SOFR? I've gone SOFR. SOFR. Okay. I've heard SOFIE, even though, you know, that's more of a a naming convention than actually true to the acronym. Uh, You know, those those LIBOR fans out there are just looking for, for something to to be able to speak yeah, to. Gotta, there'll, there'll be some fancy rate. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting uh, watching SOFR with the liquidity problems that were happening in the markets even before all of the coronavirus disruption. Mm-hmm. The, it'll be interesting to see if SOFR really does prove itself. George, you mentioned kind of the break uh, the breakout from the different divisions. I'd encourage all the listeners interested in more to check out the SECI blog post related to that. Uh, you know, specifically from Corpfin Investment Management, Trading and Markets, and the Office of the Chief Accountant, all uh, you know hit on some of the big issues that they see coming down the road. Kurt, I know there there are some other things that caught your eye in the quarterly newsletter that we want to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's worthwhile, even though. I think this got a little bit less coverage in the newsletter, probably because it's uh, something that we're talking about a little bit less in the in the market, although certainly more than we were five years ago. But I want to talk a little bit about developments in the ESG investing and disclosure space. Uh, ESG investing, sometimes called socially responsible investing, refers to investment strategies that consider the environmental, social, and governance, ESG, policies or practices of companies when making an investment decision. Stated differently, it's an investment strategy that takes into account both the financial return and the social or environmental good that might be expected from investments in particular public companies. While the SEC has not adopted a clear set of rules or guidelines around ESG disclosures, and it's a complex prospect I know from an accounting perspective, Institutional investors and large hedge funds are beginning to call on public companies to make clear, robust, climate-related financial disclosures and disclosures relating to sustainability. Some asset managers are threatening or plan to exit investments or cease investing in companies that present high sustainability-related risk or lack adequate transparency. And rating agencies, like Morningstar, are starting to rate issuers based on their assessments of companies' ESG risks. So suffice it to say, change is in the wind. We've still got a couple topics to cover today. I don't want to give ESG short shrift, but let's cut to the chase. George, what's in the quarterly newsletter? What has happened recently in the ESG space that we need to know about? 
Well, as you said, as you said, Kurt, this, this is an evolving area. And we saw two really interesting things happen. One was BlackRock actually announced that they were changing their approach to investing to incorporate more sustainability issues. And Larry Fink, the BlackRock chair, actually put that in a letter to company CEOs and a letter to clients. And then one, one that was interesting is at the World Economic Forum in Davos back in January, a committee there that includes large accounting firms and large public companies actually presented a report with a recommendation, actually a proposal, about how members should report performance on economic, social, and governance matters, ESG stuff. And it was interesting to see the large accounting firms, um, their approach and actually jumping on board with this was interesting. You know, there is the Sustainability Standards Board out there doing things to help promote consistency. I think this was a, a significant development and I think points to the fact that companies need to think about this now. Large companies, large multinationals have been doing it for a long time. I think in the midsize and, and getting down into smaller company space now, it's time to start thinking about these issues. And, and in particular, you may not have a lot to say about a particular issue if you're a tech company that's doing research and development, but the governance issues and the focus on how you'll do things in the future can still be addressed. And that's going to be important to investors. It seems clear to me as a concluding thought that investors are thinking about this more and more. And companies need to give investors the information that they Need. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think one of the complicating factors is that if you think across the many, the many things, the many risk factors that might fall into the ESG bucket, I mean, they're, they're diverse and there are many mm-hmm. and yes. you potentially need a different accounting or disclosure standard for every category, right? I mean, I think a, a publicly traded railroad company or energy company is going to have a very different profile than does a textile company potentially in terms of what, are, what are they going to disclose to their investors and how are they going to account for it? And I think that's where some of the, the pushback is, right? I mean, you guys Definitely. are the accountants, but when we think about what are the metrics that they disclose to the market, you sort of apply them across industries fairly uniformly. You, you can't really mm-hmm. do that in this space. No. Yeah, it's really challenging. You know, the, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board has actually developed guidelines more or less by industry. Uh, to try and deal with that kind of a challenge, but it is a huge challenge. And, and I, I did a blog post uh, a couple of years ago comparing sustainability issues that were reported by Pepsi and Coke with respect to water. I mean, water is the resource that's crucial to those two companies. Mm-hmm. And their approaches were radically different. It, it, it produced a real lack of comparability. That is a real high hurdle. And, and I thought that was one of the reasons that the proposal that was presented in Davos was interesting because they were trying to come together to a more consistent and uniform way to present that. So there would be hopefully some comparability across industries and companies. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the U.S. from a regulatory standpoint, because I think this is 
one of those issues where I'm not sure where this commission would come down. I mean, on the one hand, they always frequently talk about how they want to protect retail investors. And, you know, I think Commissioner Heron Lee was right. There is overwhelming demand for disclosure in this space. But there also seems to be a reluctance to increase the disclosure burden on public companies. I mean, you remember well, I would imagine, the reaction to the conflict mineral disclosure rule, right? So I'm just not sure what, what this commission is going to do, if anything, in the space. I, it really seems like we've got a long way to go before the rules of the road start to become clear. Yes, and, and I think it will be a very step-by-step I don't want to say baby steps, but moderately sized steps. And I, I, I like your thought about how this commission will react. I don't think there's a need for a dramatic reaction. I think change, see how it works, do the next step is an approach that could work here. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I think we're going to have to to sort of leave it there. We're in a, we're in a wait and see posture. Uh, but mm-hmm. let me give you a chance uh, for a quick plug here. I mean, I know PLI likes to stay evercurrent, as does the SECI Institute. So what kind of programming should we expect in this space going forward? I think if you look on, on the PLI webpage, you will find that at SEC Institute, uh, for our conferences, we actually include these issues in panels and discussions there. And then from a broader perspective, PLI offers a number of ESG-focused programs. If you go to the PLI webpage and put ESG or any of the topics that we've talked about for that matter into the search box, you'll get a lot of returns. And so there's all kinds of stuff there. And, and that will be true with uh, I th- the next topic I think you guys have lined up for us. George, you brought up the notion of conferences that the SEC Institute at PLI puts on. And one of the highlights of, of my calendar every year, and I know Kurt's as well, is, is the SEC Speaks Conference, which unfortunately we found out earlier this week is being uh, postponed to a later date. So we won't be able to catch a lot of that ESG-focused uh, developments Uh, at the conference in short order, but we'll be looking forward to that down the road. As we've noted, there are some things going on in the markets and in the world that relate to coronavirus or COVID-19. Reports of travel disruptions, school closings, companies transitioning to remote working contingency plans, and of course, the securities regulatory world hasn't been spared. I'd be remiss if I didn't note the considerable disruption the coronavirus seems to be causing in our capital markets. In fact, just during the week when we recorded this episode, circuit breakers have been triggered several times that temporarily halted trading. And it is now being reported that we are entering a bear market, which seems to be spurred on largely by fears of coronavirus. With that said, I want to highlight a few regulatory developments relating specifically to coronavirus. So, One, importantly, on Monday, March 9th, the SEC became the first federal agency to switch to telework when it asked employees at its headquarters in D.C. to stay home because an employee reported a potential coronavirus case. Even before the SEC transitioned some of its staff to remote working arrangements, the SEC and FINRA were actively monitoring the impact of the coronavirus. On February 4th, the SEC issued an investor bulletin that warned investors to be on the lookout for coronavirus-related investment scams. 
uh, on March 4th, so a month later, the SEC announced that it would provide conditional regulatory relief and assistance for companies affected by coronavirus. In particular, the SEC issued an order that, subject to certain conditions, provided public companies with an additional 45 days to file certain disclosure reports that would have been due on March 1 or April 30. Around the same time, the SEC's Division of Investment Management also issued a statement indicating that it would not enforce in-person board voting requirements under the Investment Company Act for companies that believe it would be prudent for them to meet or vote remotely. And finally, on March 9th, FINRA released Regulatory Notice 20-08, which reminds firms to consider pandemic-related business continuity planning in keeping with their obligations under FINRA Rule 4370. So a lot going on. Again, I think to the agency's credit, it shows that they are being thoughtful about their approach to these issues. Unfortunately, as, as a lot of things are are being postponed, delayed, and canceled in the coming weeks. Uh, you know, the coronavirus, COVID-19, is definitely playing a, a significant role, not only in, in the day-to-day life uh, of everybody that's that's affected and impacted, but also from a financial reporting perspective. And I know the, the newsletter talks a little bit about uh, some of those reporting issues, but wanted to hear more about your thoughts about how the coronavirus will be seen in the coming months and, and for this year in terms of financial reporting. I think that is a wonderful question, and I think at this point, the answer is my my favorite answer to every SEC reporting-related question, it depends, (laughs) because if I can just address three things briefly, number one, don't, you know, from the perspective of the group that I'm fortunate to work with in the SEC reporting world, their need to be changes in periodic reports, most likely for most companies. You know, it always depends a little bit, but I would say the risk factors that many companies have begun to incorporate for COVID-19 probably need to be modified given the nature of the evolving risk. And and that goes back to the principles-based approach to risk factor disclosures that we've used for for many years. As the risk becomes bigger, your risk factor becomes more broad and, and, and more specific as to how that risk affects your company. We're seeing so much going on in the world day to day. The other thing that I think people in the reporting realm need to be focused on is known trend disclosures and MDNA. You know, when you be, when it becomes reasonably likely that a risk is going to have a material adverse impact on your company, risk factors don't do the disclosure job you need. You need to put that in as a known trend in MDNA and use the words material adverse impact. This is the right time to not be scared about that disclosure. I mean, it's it's out there. Most companies struggle with, oh, if we do that, you know, bad things will happen. Well, this is the time you want to be very direct and forthright about it. And investors will understand that. No two ways about it. Um, but the SEC reporting realm is part of that. Uh, beyond that, in the financial statements, in a little bit of the guidance that the, that you mentioned, and, and a statement from the from the chair, a joint statement with the PCOB chair. Also, um, they talked about subsequent event disclosure. So companies that haven't filed their K yet, if you really are looking at 
uh, significant impact, uh, financial impact from this pandemic event. That might bear subsequent event disclosure in your financial statements beyond just the SEC reporting issues and risk factors and known trends in MDNA. And then, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, Thinking beyond that for the first quarter, all of those things kind of need to be addressed in your overall reporting process. Yeah, I think that's right. I I suspect maybe more companies than we would have anticipated when the SEC agreed to give a little bit of a leeway or a delay in in terms of reporting. More companies are going to take them up on that than maybe we would have thought Mm -hmm. because – you know, the numbers or the picture that you had in mind when you were working on your disclosures, uh, you know, a, a month ago, a week ago, are probably very different than oh, three days ago, for goodness sakes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think some folks are going to have to rethink um, their disclosures and, and perhaps um, their numbers on a forward looking basis. I'd agree. And I think one of the one of the things that literally just happened as we're recording this podcast is the NCAA basketball tournament has been canceled. Uh, so oh my gosh. think about the amount of ad revenue and, and management wow. and logistics that CBS, uh, you know, the provider of the television viewing of that will now have to change, right? Just from a financial reporting perspective beyond, you know, the athletes and, and the supporters and all that and what they'll be uh, looking at in March, uh, that tournament being canceled obviously materially impacts, uh, you know, CBS's television division. So definitely a subsequent event there to your point, George, but also, you know, some, some new information here that I'm sure will be wildly out of date by the time this podcast becomes live. I would mention uh, as part of our mission at PLI and SCCI, we're putting a lot of information about how this is affecting companies out there, including a one-hour briefing uh, being presented on March 27th. Who knows where we'll be by March 27th? That's right. Well, the the timing of that is interesting because that, I believe, is uh, either the day before or the day that the annual SEC Speaks program was scheduled to get underway. And uh, Chris, I don't know. Do you want to do you want to tell everybody about SEC Speaks? I don't know, Kurt. I'm a little bit too sad to talk about it. Oh, I I'm heartbroken. I was I was really excited about your live podcast from SEC Speaks. That was going to be so cool. The best laid plans, George. Uh, we'll be looking to pick that up when the the conference, which has been uh, postponed, will be rescheduled hopefully later this year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I. I'm, I was actually scheduled to teach the day of SEC Speaks, the second day. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to be able to be there. So I'm hoping to be able to be there this year also. Well, so we'll have to pull you in the booth to, to catch up and see what's happened since this recording. I think that would be delightful. We'd love to thank George Wilson for joining us, talking a little bit about the SEC Institute, the SECI blog and, and quarterly newsletter. You can find out more at seciblog.pli.edu. George, I'm sure you've got some great content uh, coming up in the coming weeks as well. Yes. Yeah, we're actually doing a whole series about the SEC's proposed uh, MDNA changes. And we'll continue to do as much as possible to make sure people know what they need to know about the coronavirus issues and then anything else that pops up along the way. You got it. So thanks again for taking the time today, George. We really enjoyed having you. Uh, Gentlemen, this was an absolute delight. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be part of your program today. Thank you, and I hope we'll have a chance to check in with you again on Insecurities. Looking forward to that already. That's it for our episode today. Uh, Thank you for joining us for the Insecurities podcast from PLI. As always... 
You can find us on Twitter. I am at Enforce underscore update. And I'm at Ekimoff CPA. Be sure to check us out on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to jump into the conversation using the hashtag InsecuritiesPod to share some topics, cases, information you'd like to hear more about. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Hope to see you next time. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI.